Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Welcome to the final 2015 episode of Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the Hollywood editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. This week, we are wrapping up 2015, asking ourselves what kind of year it's been for movies, what might have changed forever this year, and then, of course, how the Oscars have or have not reflected all of it. And then from there, we'll share our conversation with Elizabeth Banks, who stars in the Brian Wilson biopic Love and Mercy, as well as in the final Hunger Games movie. And despite being incredibly busy and well-connected, she still claims that she feels like an outsider from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Finally, we'll go big before we go home one last time this year and check in on the state of the extremely competitive Best Actress race. So guys, we've reached the end of 2015. We've all seen Star Wars, which kind of felt like the official end of the year, and the rest of this is just uh, gravy. Uh, it's been an odd year for movies in that the uh, the biggest movies have been giant franchises, but some of the more interesting stuff to talk about has been a lot more unique. It's been a really weird Oscar race, as we've been talking about for weeks now. I kind of want to start just by asking a big general question. Richard, has it been a good year for movies? I think it has been a good year. I think it's been, like you said, a kind of odd, kind of lopsided year. I think that it's it's not that usual that we get a lot of good movies kind of in the earlier part of the year, but this year we had Clouds of Sils Maria, we had Ex Machina, we had, you know, like there were some interesting things coming out in the spring, and and then the summer started with amazingly well with Mad Max and then kind of slowed, and there were a couple, you know, we had Fantastic Four bombed, Tomorrowland bombed, like like there were kind of these weird instances, uh, instances of the Hollywood machine seeming to kind of... Yeah, yeah. Although we did have one of the greatest movies of all time, Fast and Furious 7. That's exactly right. (laughs) And, um, you know, and then, but you had uh, movies that were some of the best of the year, like We Are Your Friends, the Zac Efron DJ um, drama that that just totally bombed. (laughs) I think the only one who liked that movie. But, you know, I think it was a good year. I think that for the purposes of this kind of conversation, I think the interesting thing is it wasn't a great year for your standard kind of Oscar fair movie. I think that this sort of the sort of conventional wisdom of the prestige period thing or whatever. I think that those movies, for whatever reason, kind of didn't have the steam, like, you know, a Danish girl or something that people, they're they're kind of supposed to. And so I think that's why we're sort of left kind of being like, well, okay, what actually Mm -hmm. were the best movies of the year? Which I think makes it more interesting. You know, Mm -hmm. when we have a movie like Mad Max actually having Oscar chances because the sort of prescribed Oscar bait didn't kind of pan out. 
Yeah, and there wasn't that much of it this year, which has been really no. interesting. And the term Oscar bait has been kind of misused for a while. I mean, I think ever since No Country for Old Men won Best Picture, like knowing the kind of movie that wins Best Picture is a little bit harder. But there aren't as many movies like The Danish Girl that just have a prestige written all over them, which is why people wind up picking as their favorites of the year Mad Max or Diary of a Teenage Girl or... Fast and Furious Seven, like if you're Mike, <laughs> there's definitely that was a more kind of a joke. Well, the, like the the diversity comes from like you were saying, kind of a lopsided year, but also maybe people, you know, rethinking what is the movie that's supposed to fill that kind of box. Well, yeah, and two other movies that have been able to hang in there because some of the obvious souffles never arose are The Martian and Spotlight, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think two are my, two of my favorite movies of the year. And Spotlight, everybody kind of is now looking really like a best picture favorite. And early on, everyone thought, well, it's just too small. It doesn't have that sweep. And then all the movies that were supposed to have that sweep just it didn't really work in the majority of cases. And, and so even though I have a lot of fondness for The Revenant, it doesn't feel like that really connected in the way that it did. I didn't really have that fondness for Steve Jobs and, and Hateful Eight. And there are people who love those movies, but there's also a lot of people who kind of didn't. And so, yeah, I think we were left in this, I think we're all saying the same thing. We're left in this interesting world of like some really good blockbusters and some really good, very small movies and and not much. And a lot of really bad blockbusters, which I guess is the case every year. But, you know, you look at. Yeah, I mean, like, do you expect the blockbusters to be good in a year? To me, the fact that there were three. I mean, actually, if we count them up, The Martian, was that a blockbuster? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Uh, Star Wars, Mad Max. Mission Impossible was pretty good. Mission Impossible was pretty I'm good. throwing Fast Seven in there Absolutely. as like a Inside, wonderful, ridiculous movie. Three film of the year. Yeah, but I yeah. look at the. That's bo- a pretty the, good year for blockbusters. Well, I looked at the top of the box office, which as we recorded is currently topped by Jurassic World and Avengers: Age of Ultron. Okay, uh, Star Wars might hate be. Jurassic Star Wars World, might be but, there. But I, I mean, the original, like Jurassic Park, was a great blockbuster. Avengers, oh, by the way, I've never think, seen the original Jurassic Park. That's probably that's, why I liked Jurassic. That World. That is a shame. We need to fix that <laughs> in 2016. Yeah. But you know, Jurassic Park's a great blockbuster. I thought Avengers was a great blockbuster. So to see these kind of weird kind of carbon copy versions of them. This has been a big year for kind of secretly remaking a movie. Creed does that. Star Wars yes. kind of does that. Those yep. movies really succeed at it. But then you've got these kind of retreads. I mean, we're obviously stuck with retreads and reboots and sequels. That's never going away. But there are some movies that did this really well in really inventive ways. And then I think a lot of them that were kind of going through the paces. And the question I keep trying to ask myself that I don't really know the answer to is, does Hollywood get its audience anymore? Does it actually know what people want to make when it t- pours a ton of money into Fantastic Four? And then something like The Martian comes out and is made for way less money and becomes a huge hit. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that what's the figure? How much of box office revenue now is foreign? You know, it's it's like some huge percentage. 70 percent, I think it is. Yeah. That's a huge, diverse, vast audience to sort of cater to. So I think that, you know, unless you have these very tested things like Star Wars that, you know, people is known kind of globally it's a lot harder to make a, a movie that appeals, you know, to the sort of those th- those those are pretty big quadrants, you know, mm-hmm. to fill. But um, even with Star Wars, it's interesting because I I actually we argued about this after seeing it the other night. I th- I thought that the kind of remake aspect of it was good and worked. But on the other hand, you have to think even J.J. Abrams felt obliged in a way to like go back and hit the same notes. Mm-hmm. Rather than do something different and daring, I think they will have plenty of time to do different and daring things with all the various sequels and prequels that are on the you know docket. Yeah. But but yeah, like you're saying, if you're gonna if you're gonna try and make a billion dollars around the world, you can't like make a bunch of eccentric decisions. Right. Like I mean, Mad Max didn't do that well, for example. Like right. it did yeah. okay. It yeah. did all right. But like it's it didn't really do that well in the United States, certainly. And you know, I, so I think that um, we're gonna see probably a lot like. 
you know, we're going to have the sort of 1% of movies where it's something like Star Wars or Jurassic World, which are these very, very trusted, tested properties that make a billion dollars and then probably a pretty steep drop off from there, right? I mean, I don't think that we're going to fill the, the void between a $200 million movie and a billion dollar movie. Yeah, you know? but, and I'm looking at the domestic box office right now and at movies that didn't cost a fortune, that didn't cost $250 million the way that Star Wars did before marketing. Um, and something like The Intern or Bridge of Spies that kind of may, are made for a modest budget and, you know, have currently made a good amount of money in the United States. It's smaller ball, but it's something those studios have to do on some level because if you pour all of your movie into a tentpole like Disney did with John Carter a couple of years ago and then it tanks, then you're done for. You have to have something to balance out the sheet. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in an interesting period in the, this sort of... Remember when Spielberg and Lucas were on some panel and they were talking about how this this system of tentpole movies is doomed and it's going to destroy studios and all that? That was a couple of years ago, maybe? Yes. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're at, we're still in that narrative, maybe, you know? Uh, um, and I think we're at an interesting point where things are sort of fluctuating. And, and, you know, the market is obviously propped up by Star Wars and will be... There's this Wired article now out this week about how basically there's going to be a Star Wars movie every year for... Ever. For like the next few decades. Yeah. You know, that, or that's the plan anyway. Uh, so that'll kind of create a weird sort of almost, you know, imbalance, I think, in, in the force. But you do yeah. feel like you can, you, you, you want to savor this moment where there's one really great Star Wars movie and it's the first one we've had yeah. in a long time. And we're not oh, sick yeah. of it. It's yeah, gonna that's going to so go away. I know. And, and, and even there. the trailers before Star Wars, you could sense the creative exhaustion where it was just five uh, apocalyptic movies with like Bram soundtracks you know uh one after another right. every yeah. single one was like the, the earth hangs in the balance yeah. Yeah. and you yeah. know no, it's like how many year... times can you watch it's not even interesting anymore i'd rather watch a, 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 a you know martha's vineyard be terrorized by a mechanical shark <laughs> <laughs> right so that's that suddenly seems like the right. most interesting kind of small storytelling yeah. yeah, you can do a lot of hand-wringing from this year and a lot of previous years about the kind of franchisification of our movie futures. Like, every slate is marked out for the next 10 years. We've got Batman versus Superman next spring, and it's going to lead into Captain America Civil War, and then whatever else Marvel has coming up next year. But then you get things like, like, Ant-Man was a pretty good Marvel movie. Like, I didn't love it, but it kind of had a lot of energy to it. Star Wars is clearly setting up this whole franchise, but it does a really good job in the meantime. So, like, I think it's there's a creative bankruptcy to it, for sure, and, like, the lack of original ideas so that something like The Martian comes along and everyone's like, oh, my God, how did this movie do so well when it's just a good movie? But there's room for something good in it. Like, I'm excited about next year's Star Wars spinoff Rogue One, which is a heist movie. That seems fantastic to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and so Oscars has traditionally been that sort of middle ground, right? Where it's mm-hmm. where it's like, hey, here's a reason to spend some money on what would otherwise be a tiny little independent movie because if you can manage to score some nominations, you'll get some marketing for it and people actually go see it. And I think that's what's weird this year and this, sometimes this happens is just those movies kind of didn't hit. And some of the big blockbusters did hit. To me, it's always surprising when any blockbuster is good at this point, to be Mm -hmm. perfectly honest. And what's cool about the sort of, you know, Bridge of Spies being one of the few kind of traditional Oscar movies that actually worked and made it is I I do think it's nice that that we're looking again at Ex Machina or looking again. I don't think it's really going to hit the Oscars, but like people should watch Ex Machina. There's no reason they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And and something like Spotlight or Room maybe does have a chance of, of, of sneaking in there. Well, and movies like Ex Machina get finance on the hope of Oscars, but also of people like us talking about it ad nauseum. And it actually did really well at the box office earlier this year. Like movies like that that are made for that price point, that have those kinds of actors in it, that have an idea behind them. There's always 
room for that somewhere. I mean, like even Lucy last year, which was this crazy sci-fi blockbuster movie that was like 85 minutes long and made no sense and was made for nothing, was a huge hit. So there's yeah. there's weird ideas like that, but the finances have to make sense. So nothing's going to get made like that on a Star Wars level. They have to get made right. on an Ex Machina level. Yeah. Um, I liked uh, that the Village Voice critics poll, you know, where they, they, they poll, you know, hundreds of critics. I don't know. There's one question in there that I like, which is um, what movie everyone is wrong about this year. So yeah. you can kind of take it as they're saying it's good, but you think it's bad or, or vice versa. Do you guys have a movie like that this year? I put down A Little Chaos, this movie that Alan Rickman directed with Kate Winslet about the gardens at Versailles. I think it's this lovely little movie that people, other people kind of seem to either not care about or, or dislike. Yeah, you say everyone is wrong about it, more like everyone is unaware of it. Well, yeah, exactly. Everyone yeah, everyone is a big word for how many people saw that movie. <laughs> um, all six of us. But yeah, I mean, I thought that movie was great and should have gotten more attention. Are there movies like that for you guys this year? Um, I put on my poll for that pan, which I don't think is a oh, yeah. great movie, mm-hmm. but it's kind of it was one of the really high-profile flops from this year. And there were a lot of high-profile flops. Like we mentioned We Are Your Friends, we mentioned Fantastic Four, Tomorrowland was a big one. And pan, everyone just really seemed to have the knives out for it. It was kind of like Jupiter Ascending. Like, it just looked so nuts on the surface that no yeah. one could take it seriously. But it's a nice little movie. It's got a good heart. Joe Wright is a really good filmmaker, and it's not badly made. But it got... Everyone yeah. really was just kind of set up to kick it for some reason, which bums me out. With it. I mean, it was way too expensive, and Warner Brothers probably deserved to lose money on it. But that's not why we go see movies. Fast and Furious 7. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'll really stick my neck out. Last year at South by Southwest, I judged the narrative competition and we gave the award to a movie called Fort Tilden which on the basis of that actually got you know released and I don't know if anyone saw it clearly like nobody was won over the way that Oliver Platt and myself and Kate Arthur were as the um, well just to say it wasn't just me (laughs) Oliver Platt loved that movie anyway I thought that was a pretty fun weird movie this is a nice variety of movies we've just recommended right here yeah the hope is you know we're in the modern era like maybe people will find these things on Netflix or whatever and they'll have a second life or a life they never you know a first life I think Jupiter Ascending is going to have a big second life and people watching it being like wait how bad can it really be because it's crazy it's it's, that's maybe the craziest movie I've seen in a long time well I mean Mad Max is pretty crazy too but it works and Jupiter Ascending is crazy and doesn't totally work yeah when the bees thing happened in Jupiter sending I was like I don't know what is going to happen <laughs> well, it's but... like Eddie Redmayne's like you know so high caliber screaming yeah and he won an Oscar anyway not for the movie let's be clear but by the way one other thing I want to say I have been on this podcast on the record saying Mad Max is not going to work with Oscar voters and you've gotten some uh, some hell for and it and some people do not like that but on the 4th, on, on January 4th, when we get back, they're doing two of these kind of prestige Oscar votary events. One is for Mad Max and one is for Creed. I think it's so interesting. They're both on the same day. And yep. I think, again, you know, Creed's another movie that in this sort of strange year, suddenly that looks like a nice movie to put a bet on. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting. Like, they're going to go for it. They're not going to accept that this movie, you know, Mad Max is too weird for Oscar voters. Mm-hmm. They're going to try. And I'm Warner Brothers movies, too, which is interesting. Yeah, I would be totally happy to be proven wrong on this. Oh, somebody said also, uh, was it Matt Patches who said the, the reason it will do well is that the voters don't vote, their kids vote. Yeah, that's true. I that's just a, stole Matt's. We're giving Matt credit for. We'll his have to idea. have him on to talk about that theory because yes, that's yeah. a whole segment in and of itself. Okay, real quick, 2016. Do we feel better or worse about it? Based on the X Men Apocalypse trailer, I'm very concerned because that trailer is so bad. <laughs> I'm excited. An early thing in 2016 is Sundance, and there's a really cool lineup of films from directors like Kenneth Lonergan, Todd Solondz, Kelly Reichert. Yeah, Kelly Reichert. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming up. Hopefully, that will 
be good and be released in some t- at some point this year. There are a couple things that I saw at festivals. Oh, The Meddler. I've, I've already plugged oh, it on, yeah, this, yeah. on this podcast. My favorite Susan Sarandon performance in a long, long time. Great little movie. That's coming, coming out, out this spring. spring. So I think, yeah, from what I've seen and what I know about, I, I think that we, can, we have a lot to look forward to. I, uh, I'm pinpointing Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers movie. Sure. It's premiering at sure. Berlin, I believe, or I won't be. But it comes out, I think, a couple weeks later. So if it is as fun as the trailer looks, we're in good shape. Mike, how about you? I'm still trying to catch up with 2015. The fact that there's a whole <laughs> other year of movies coming out soon is just too exhausting well, to consider. Well, you got to catch that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles trailer that we, uh, oh, that we yeah. saw before Star Wars. I know. That looked like uh, a video game. Well, <laughs> we'll be back in 2016 to uh, talk about some good stuff and maybe some of this nonsense and uh, you know, maybe help us forget about the low points of this year. And now we'll share our conversation with Elizabeth Banks, star of both Love and Mercy and the Final Hunger Games movie, who caught up with us, I think, in a car when she was between events, because that is how busy she is. But uh, she talked about her experience of getting to know Melinda Ledbetter, who became Brian Wilson's wife when she met him kind of later in his life after some pretty terrible things had happened to him, and uh, kind of the bond she developed with John Cusack, who was playing Brian Wilson at that point in his life as a result. So, Elizabeth, I have been uh, telling everyone I can tell how great Love and Mercy is ever since I saw it at last Toronto. And, you know, congratulations on on that film. You've had an incredible year, which we'll talk about. But we want to start with with Love and Mercy. And one of the interesting things to me is that you and Paul Dano are both kind of getting some awards heat for your roles. But if I had to guess, you probably never even were on set at the same time. Is that right? Did you guys even interact (laughs) while making the film? No. We didn't. We did not. No. I mean, we had we had one day at the very beginning of our shoot where we did a little crossover, you know, where Cusack and and Paul kind of got to look each other up and down and have a little chat about what was going on. But the film is very ambitious in that two different guys playing one man, Brian Wilson, um, at two different periods of his life, the 60s and the 80s. And they shot the entire 60s sequence before us. And then I'm in the 80s sequence and they shot the entire 80s sequence after the 60s, so it was like making two totally different movies. So when we got to set, the crew had had spent, you know, weeks with the 60s and all that that entailed and with Paul, and then we showed up and sort of readjusted and got into the 80s, and all we heard about was how wonderful Paul was and how great that whole part of the shoot was, and we thought, <laughs> oh, great. So did you start to get a little yeah. competitive with those guys? We got, we did. We definitely got a little competitive, like, all right, well, but we're here now. And it's going to also, <laughs> but, you know, we don't do a lot of the singing. I think so much of what was so great about the 60s part of the film and what's so beautiful in the film is the, is the music making. You really get to see Brian as an artist at work. And I think everybody loved working on that. I love watching it as a viewer, even though I wasn't there. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's interesting about the film is, in the 60s, you're seeing Brian Wilson at the peak of his powers, but also starting to, you know, deal with mental illness. And, yeah. and then in the 80s, you're seeing Brian Wilson played by John Cusack. Basically, when you first meet him, he's deep in in mental illness. And part of what brings him out is his relationship with your character. And, and I, I'm curious, what was that like? doing a love story with somebody who is, you know, a character that is that troubled. Was that, was that a new challenge for you? Absolutely. It was it's sort of my main, my main question for, you know, Melinda uh, Ledbetter, who I play, Melinda Ledbetter-Wilson, when I first met with her. I mean, I, I definitely had to put aside my own personal issue of, why would you get involved with someone with that much baggage? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it worked and, out uh, for her in the end. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, she's, you know, they 
I think what's so amazing and strong and, and inspiring about their love story is just that, that you know, it was one step at a time, and, and, and she really taught me such a great lesson. As an actor, too, a great reminder that, you know, you don't play the whole person, you don't play the whole movie, you don't play the end, you, you just play those moments. You know, she said it unfolded before me sort of slowly. You know, you don't meet the guy and think, oh, this guy's nuts. You know, you meet him and he's interesting and he's truthful and he's unlike other people and he intrigued me and, and I, there were pheromones flying around. We were attracted to each other. You know, the real basics of that begin any relationship began their relationship and then, you know, slowly she's peeling back the layers of what's going on with him and, and uh, Dr. Eugene Landy, who's a huge influence in his life in the 80s, a, a bad influence in his life, played by Paul Giamatti <laughs> in the film. Yeah. Now, did you see Straight Outta Compton? Were you, were you feeling competitive with that in terms of Paul Giamatti's two uh, roles as kind of evil <laughs> music producer guys? You know, he really chews it up, doesn't he? I mean, he plays a bad guy like nobody else. I love the man so much. <laughs> So you were talking in another interview about how this was pretty different from playing Laura Bush, which I can only imagine is really different. But I, w- I wondered if you could go into detail. I mean, you got to become really good friends with Melinda, but how does, you know, preparing for that when you're meeting this person compare to, you know, taking a person who's a very famous person? I know that you had a lot of room to work with with playing Melinda since she's not that famous, but what, what was that connection yeah. like that was so different? Well, yeah, I think the only reason, I mean, I, I really feel there's very little comparison other than I, I do think both those, both women are in grand love affairs with their husbands. Um, I, I believe Laura, and uh, I believe that's a good marriage. But, you know, the only reason I compare them is, or other people compare them is because they're both real people. And, and there is a, you know, more of a responsibility when you're portraying a real person. You know, you want, you always want, I find, for like a family member or a friend who sees the portrayal to tell you that you, you got, oh, yeah, I, I, I saw her in you, you know, or I saw her on screen for even for a moment because obviously I can't transform my personal self totally into, into these women. And so you're always looking just for like an essence, you know, and you never want to do sort of mimicry. You always want to be connected to what's human about them and, and what, you know, where you feel connected to them. And, and I, you know, I, I'm in a, grand love affair in my marriage, too, for a long time. I felt connected um, to both women on that level. And did when Melinda saw the film, what, uh, how were you feeling when you knew that she was going to be seeing it for the first time? Well, I, it was, it was uh, John Cusack who texted me to say, you know, Melinda saw it, and I, I said, okay, well, and, and? And he was like, we haven't, we haven't heard anything yet. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought, oh, no, it's so bad. You know, we were both panicking. But I think really, you know, she, she just needed to, um, you know, she needed a process, as anyone would. I mean, it's really such a gift that they gave us their life to put on screen, especially knowing what that life entailed at that time, you know, and um, how much they overcame to be together. And, you know, it, it, we, don't, we don't get to go there in the film, but, you know, I've been to their beautiful home with their five adopted kids and I think now 12 dogs. Oh. Um, and you know, their big, happy, beautiful life. He, he plays music, he tours, you know, my, my mom and, and my aunt went to see him in Boston recently and loved the show. I mean, he's, you know, he, they won. And that's what's so great about this story, too, is, is that's what sort of carried me through is knowing that they've, they figured it out. They figured out how to have the big, beautiful life that we all hope for. Elizabeth, um, so as Mike said, this uh, this movie premiered at Toronto 
September 2014, and it's now <laughs> December 2015. What is the experience of being with a movie after you've shot it and everything like? I mean, obviously now we're talking about award season and all that stuff, but I would, you know, the movie came out in the summer. Like, what is the process of kind of being on that sort of long kind of ride like? Well, I think we love the we love the film, and we all had a great time making it. And you know, I and and more than anything. This is Brian Wilson's authorized biographical film. You know, this is going to be a sort of an asterisk in the story of the Beach Boys. It's, it's part of his his legacy and what will endure about him. And it's very open, I think, really reveals, you know, his mental illness in a way that he's never, you know, totally talked about um, as openly before. All of those things feel really important to us. And to be talking about a movie that we loved making you know, to keep talking about it. I mean, it's just the, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, honestly, I think we're all very, we're, we're surprised and delighted. One of the things that I'm interested in, I, I read when I was in college, I think, wouldn't it be nice, the Brian Wilson autobiography that a lot of people believe was actually written by Eugene Landy, whom you described as the bad guy here. Yeah. And And did you guys, were you guys thinking about that book? Were you aware of that book and trying to kind of set the record straight? Because that portrays a kind of a, overhyped, possibly slanderous version of what happened to, to Brian Wilson, some people say. We have the real people, so we went right to the source as much as we could, you know. And and interestingly, Brian, who is just this soulful, sweet, amazing, grace-filled man who holds very few grudges in life, you know, it's, it's hard to get him to even say anything negative about sort of Eugene or, or that time in his life. Whereas Melinda, you know, had Landy's number from minute go and <laughs> really despised that man and saw the abuse in the relationship. And and I think partially, and I, I felt this as well in making the movie, and I feel this when people talk to me about the film after experiencing it, that, you know, Brian found himself in a series of, of bad relationships. I think we've all been in some bad relationships. You know, you get involved with somebody who you realize is, you know, it, no... This guy, Landy, was abusive in so many ways to Brian, practically held him captive, but and was a fraud at his job and all these things. But I think we've all had some extent of that happen to us where we're not quite sure how to get out of something, you know, we, we, where we've come to rely on somebody or we have a codependency with somebody that we don't know how to get out of. And that felt very relatable to me for Brian. And I think we've all experience that those moments where we just need a little clarity and we need to get the hell out and and we all want to be the person for somebody that just offers them love and understanding and a, and a hand and a way out and then that's what melinda does for brian in the film so i'm not sure what order these happened in but this movie came out just a couple months after pitch perfect 2 and since you've had yeah. the experience of being a director i'm curious about how that's affected either the projects you're choosing as an actor or how you relate to directors when I mean, you're continuing an acting career after having stepped behind the camera in that way. What has that changed for you, especially because Pitch Perfect 2 did so well and was so beloved <laughs> by people? You know, honestly, the main thing it changes for me is um, I have to make decisions now about how to spend my time. Do I want to act or direct? <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad <laughs> you know, decision. Because I feel very lucky that the movie Pitch Perfect 2, which I directed, did well, and people liked it, and it, it is really a representation of me. It's very much my personality on screen, and I think, uh, and I really enjoyed doing it. I want to do more of it. So now it's really just about decisions about how to spend my time, you know. Have you acted in a role since filming Pitch Perfect 2? 
I did Wet Hot American Summer, I okay. think, the Netflix series, since I did it. Yeah. But, I mean, that was going back to work with people I've known since the very first days of my career. Easy Breeze. And, we were, you know, we have a lot of fun together. And I am always looking for fun. I will say that. And acting is a lot easier than directing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a lot easier. We wanted to ask about some of the fun stuff around the Oscars. You've presented. You've, you've been to the Vanity Fair Oscar yes. party a few times. Do you have any kind of shining memory that comes out of all that? What, what's it like to present? What's it like to be up there? Oh, gosh. I remember presenting for me was all about the shoes because I had to walk down uh, like four stairs, you know, like come out on stage and walk down these stairs in front of a billion people and don't <laughs> don't trip. And I just remember it, it was all about the shoes. I, I practiced in the shoes the day before. I brought them specifically and and was just sort of panicked about the shoes. What were so the shoes? I, they they were platform like Brian Atwoods or something. I'm not even, I don't really remember. You did not make it easy on yourself is what you're saying. I didn't. I did not make it easy on myself, no. Um, they're beautiful shoes, but they were, you know, torture chambers that could have been my downfall, literally my downfall. Um, so I remember that. I also remember it being a really great show in the room and feeling like a real sense of camaraderie um, among everybody that's there. I, I think that that... Vanity Fair Party also is really that. It's a great sense of camaraderie. You know, the, the business that I work in is actually not that big. Um, it's sort of a, you know, a community of people who always crisscross, and you always see somebody that you haven't seen probably since the party the year before, or you get to meet your idols, or you get to talk to people who, you know, you're looking forward to working with. I just feel like it's one of these, it's one of the few places, for me, I'm such an outsider to Hollywood. You know, I'm from, like, a small town low-rent gal um, who kind of showed up late to the party and um, the fact we're, that we're I not going to go, interrupt you, but we, you know, obviously, we're not going to accept that exactly from you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, but it's true. You know, I didn't grow up in. I mean, you know, I I I, I pal around with people that you know grew up in LA and have you know, or, or their parents did it, or they've been going to the Vanity Fair party a lot longer than me. Um, <laughs> and so I just feel like I do feel a sense of outsiderness that. Sort of dissipates very slightly whenever I get to go to the Vanity Fair party. <laughs> don't you don't you think everyone feels that? Do the people who grew up in LA not feel that? I feel like they must have their Jane, own thing that Jane they're worried Fonda about. Jane Fonda does not feel. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Jane Fonda is not a normal human. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, Are there, um, he does not feel that. You mentioned meeting your idols at the Oscars. Any particularly good idols who you've only encountered at you know on the Oscars red carpet or at the parties that you wouldn't have gotten to meet otherwise? I approached John Cleese and Steve Martin, who were talking wow. together, and I made them laugh. And I don't <laughs> even know what I said. It's all a blur, but I sort of like <laughs> somehow charmed them and made them laugh. And I'm not kidding you. I I basically dropped the mic and walked off. Like that's the greatest <laughs> moment of my life. I'll, it'll never get better than that. I need to leave immediately before I before I ruin that moment. You know, I literally was like, "Oh my God, they're both laughing." Okay, bye. <laughs> I just peace out. You leave on a high note. That's a smart way to go. Gotta leave on the high. Always leave them wanting more. So, uh, how are you feeling about this Oscar season? Some of the other competitors there, or uh, or, or fellow films. Are, are there any that you would like to see? Any people that you'd like to see get nominated, win? Any films that you're rooting for? I, I really thought Belle Powley in um, Diary of a Teenage Girl was incredible. I thought she just really announced herself as, a, a, you know, someone to be reckoned with. I loved that performance. I thought that movie was so well done. Also a female director, first-time director, and, you know, they had a little budget, and I thought they really 
I thought it was a really important portrait for young women. I thought, gosh, if I saw that movie when I was 15, I would have really connected to that movie and that character. And she and Paul Dano were fellow Gotham Award winners. So uh, you you celebrate a little bit with that. I know. I think she's incredible. Anyway, that's one one to watch. Um, For Love and Mercy, how does something like Paul Dano winning that Gotham Award? I mean, I know that, like, it's a long road and there's a lot of awards seasons going on. But does that kind of give everyone a, a kind of boost in their step when you're trying to keep love and mercy out there and people talking about it? Yeah, of course. And I think, you know, we also have an amazing script by an incredible screenwriter, Oren Moverman, that, you know, is getting a lot of attention too, which is great. And, you know, really for me, it's getting emails from people that are seeing the film and, and, you know, just now finding it on the screeners and, or people who are seeing it on, I get a lot of emails from people who have been on airplane flights, like, you know, coming back from London and, emailing me that they, you know, they were so moved on the flight. Although I always say at 30,000 feet, you're going to cry at anything. (laughs) (laughs) At least I do. I laugh harder and weep weep harder at anything I watch on an airplane. But I'm happy for people's experience in flight to be improved by love and mercy. Yeah, so do you recommend the in-flight viewing? Like, that's the ideal way to, I mean, obviously seeing it on a big screen is the number one. But if number two, you're watching on a DVD, then get on a, get at 30,000 feet and then really experiencing it. I interestingly feel like this film does, it's very personal, this film. It, it really is a, it's a personal experience for people who watch it. You know, it's not, not something that necessarily needs to be um, seen with a group. So I, I don't mind this movie being watched on airplanes, although, of course, I never recommend that. <laughs> Well, I guess on an airplane, at least they're a captive audience, but... Uh, <laughs> they're not going um, So just before we let you go, um, you know, I'm a big Hunger Games fan. I thought the last movie was fantastic. And I just wanted to know what it's like to kind of end the run of that. You know, it's a th- three-plus-year kind of, well, I guess longer than that journey for, for you. Longer, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's been sort of like five years start to finish. It was... It was sad. I got I got emotional, I think, in London. You know, everybody sort of... We were all up on stage and sort of saying, you know, thank you to the fans and introducing the movie. And it was, I sort of got caught caught up in this notion of like, oh, that's it. You know, we've always had the reunions to look forward to. So even though we stopped filming a couple of years ago, almost, we knew we had two movies to put out and that we'd be able to see each other again. And we really do all love hanging out and seeing each other. I mean, it's an amazing group of people. Just one of these incredible casts where... Just every role fit the person like a glove, and everybody trusted everybody. And we had amazing directors on all four films, and just a great experience. You know, Woody Harrelson said to me, "I wish they'd make twenty more of these," and I, I don't disagree. I, I, I miss, I miss Effie for sure. Well, and you and Woody Harrelson got to uh, sneak in a non-book romance, which I think must have really thrilled a lot of people at the, at the very <laughs> end. There, <laughs> we did, yeah. And I was so happy when. Uh, in that uh, Francis kept it in the cut. It was a really fun moment. I, you know, it's a, it's a, the movie is, um, it's a heavy film, you know, the war is real. It's not just the Hunger Games. And yeah, I think that thematically is partly, you know, what Francis Lawrence was going for about you may, really making a statement about the effects of, of war and violence on people and their lives. And, you know, just having that little bit of levity, <laughs> just knowing that these two people were connected on a deep level that meant something to all the Haiti fans, for sure, and to, and to Woody and I. How did Jennifer Lawrence's trailer situation change from before she had an Oscar versus after? Did she suddenly get, like, a... Uh... <laughs> no. I don't recall her having... Like, I've been on set with, you know, mostly men 
who have like four trailers and create like their own little compound. That's not Jen. So <laughs> we, we were all, it was, you know, we, we lined everybody up and she's very much, a, she's a great leader in that way and that she's just kind of, um, she gets what she needs, but not much more than that. Well, for the record, I was kidding because she's obviously very down-to-earth movie star. <laughs> so down <laughs> Well, Elizabeth Banks, may the odds be in your favor with this. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, you guys. Thanks so much. And now before we go home and wrap up 2015, uh, it's time to make our boldest predictions about what might be the toughest category to predict, I think, best actress. Guys, there's so many great performances here. What are we going to do? I'm going to still stick with Brie Larson. Mm-hmm. I think for, uh, she's uh, the star of Room. She's very good. I think she, it's a good narrative you know, for that you know, it's a way for that movie to be rewarded that it probably won't be otherwise. You know, and I think that people like to find a new a new face. And, you know, she's been around, but I think this is a big breakthrough for her. And I think that people are going to go for that. I uh, I think Brie Larson is a strong contender, too. And I wouldn't have said this a couple weeks ago, but I think Saoirse Ronan is really coming in there. Brooklyn is a really lovely movie. The more people see it, it plays great on screener. It's the kind of thing you're going to watch over the holidays with your family. And she's so great in it. She's been nominated before. She's really charming. And she and Brie Larson are in this interesting spot as kind of up-and-comers. I don't know which one of them has the edge, so I kind of want to give it to Saoirse for now. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're home with your family and you have screeners you know, over the holidays— and you're like, okay, woman locked in in shed or lovely period piece about a, a nice Irish girl moving to Brooklyn. I think you're going to go with it's the It's true. Polarity. I think yeah. a lot of people don't want to watch Room, are yeah. afraid to watch it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is a shame because I think it's really good. But it, it is, is really intense. Good. It's intense. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I for a while I thought Kate Blanchett, even though I, I, I pretty much think Brie, I'm, I'm kind of voting for Brie at the moment. But I think Kate, if she didn't have all those other Oscars, I think, you know, she would be very likely for Carol. I also yeah. don't know how much momentum Carol has. It was one of my favorite movies of the year, but I, I gather that there's some difference of opinion on it. You know, I don't think Joy is good enough, frankly, for Jennifer Lawrence to, to win with, and she um, And she already has one. And she has one, too. So, uh, the, the one I would love to see is, I, I want to see her get nominated as Charlotte Rampling yeah. Uh, yeah. for 45 years. Yeah. And that is just a, such a gorgeous, crazy, disturbing film. Well, there's some there's some thought that uh, that Charlotte Rampling could be the kind of Marion Cotillard of this year, where she didn't get the the, the pre Oscar nominations, mm-hmm. but then will sneak in there because she and is fantastic. You never know with Brie and Saoirse as these two kind of young up and comers, they might split the vote and That's have true. someone crazy come in like Charlotte Rampling. Could happen. Yeah. Okay, that does it for uh, this week's and this year's Little Gold Men. Thanks for listening to this first couple months of the start of this podcast. It's been a good year for us so far. You can find all of us writing about award season and all of the other things at VanityFair.com. Or you can follow us all on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard? Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And the whole show is at Little Gold Men. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Find us along with many more great podcasts at panoply.fm.